Thanks for tuning in to the Coffee with Kareem podcast. Don't forget to leave us a lovely review on iTunes, on any platform, and sponsor the show today at patreon.com. Links are in every description of every show. Joining me today is Dr. Azada Weber, a fellow provider at Nude Human Consulting. Welcome, Dr. Azada. Assalamu alaikum, Kareem. Thank you for having me on the show today. My pleasure, my pleasure. Oh my God, this whole corona thing, everybody's trapped in the house and, and dealing with new stressors, old stressors. Um, you know, it's it's been challenging for everybody. And uh, I know that one of the things that my wife and I have tried to consider, we have a four-year-old and uh, two younger uh, baby girls. Um, you know, how do we now kind of create an environment at home where our children can still learn and play because many kids are out of school, you know, and uh, I also have always thought about this concept of homeschooling and myself, I was in education for about five years in different settings, all the way from elementary to university instruction. And uh, today you and I are going to start getting into why homeschooling could be a good alternative for our families or anybody's um, consideration for their future children's education. So I'm excited to learn more about what we're going to discover today and uh, what you're going to share, inshallah. So first off, homeschooling, you know, does that mean that it has to be at home or is it something that can be done outside of your particular home? I mean, what's your typical understanding of the setting, just to put that up front? Then I'd love to hear more about some of the research uh, around the results of homeschooling. Okay, yeah, I think that homeschooling doesn't have to be done strictly in the home. A lot of it will possibly happen in the home, but it could be done in a co-op setting where multiple families come together and uh, share in the education of the children as all the families are invested in the community. An example of this is Elm Tree School in the East Bay of California. It's a Muslim homeschool co-op that I was fortunate enough to tour earlier this year. It has about 30 Muslim families and they meet on a ranch and so they uh, share the, the education of the children. Each parent pays about $300, I think, and they provide 10 hours of service to the school per family. And with that, they're able to homeschool all of the children. Um, otherwise, it, you know, it could, if it's just like a family doing it on their own, which is fine too, what can happen is a lot of the learning can happen outside on field trips, you know, going to, you know, a petting zoo, a museum, on a nature walk. You know, a lot of the studies can happen that way, too. Very nice. Very nice. So if my understanding is the co-op is it could be a, another space or uh, an area where uh, more than one parent will be involved. So does that mean like I could teach math and like you would do the slot on, you know, social studies and if we're in this co-op, we'd all participate in such a way? Or in some cases, those families or um, the parents will hire, let's say, five different teachers or tutors to, uh, you know, deliver the curriculum of the class. From what I understand from visiting Elm Tree is that most of it's done by parents and they hire a couple, I think they hire a couple teachers, but most of the teachers are parents and they just kind of put the parents of where their strengths are. 
homeschooling is one of those things I think a lot of people may have some um, assumptions about, right? Like it's just basically, you know, mom who's already doing millions of things at home and in between she's trying to teach a curriculum, you know, while she's feeding a baby in another hand or something like that. I mean, it's not quite so. I mean, you ha there is a st system or structure that every state tends to provide. So for instance, it'll give you the curriculum, it'll give you the lessons and the timeline of how to complete the curriculum so that those credits are, you know, valid in their state. Is that correct? That's correct. From my understanding, you could do homeschooling through a charter. And when you homeschool through a charter or, I, and you know, check me on this, but when you homeschool through a charter or through the public school system, they have a teacher that checks in with you. I think the check-in is once a week or once a month, depending on your state. But um, that person is overseeing and making sure that the child is meeting their milestones. So if the child is behind, it would, inshallah, it would come up sooner rather than later, you know, in a matter of weeks or months rather than years. Now, there was a, a pretty um, popular book that came out a few years back called Dumbing Us Down by John Taylor Gatto. And he talks about research and why he's in support of the homeschool model. And there's one quote that I that really popped out to me that I just wanted to read and then maybe we can unpack it which he says quote school is a 12-year jail sentence where bad habits are the only curriculum really learned I teach school and win awards doing it I should know John Taylor um, so I think that some people might go you know I kind of agree with that and others might go what what is this guy talking about you know kids should be in a public school or even a, a good private school because you know they get to interact and and the curriculum solid and if you're paying a lot of money you assume it's going to be really you know you're going to get every bang for your buck so to speak but that's not always the case and perhaps for families of faith who want to maintain a certain moral value system they might agree with John a bit here that they're just their kids are being socially engineered and indoctrinated not to be free thinkers or intellectual beings and certainly there's no you know deeper reflection of what is beyond you know getting a's and b's on the tests in front of you in other words the moral virtual uh, excuse me in other words the moral and virtuous nourishment is lacking often in many schools so let's unpack this a bit i mean what are some of the things that you've learned um, are in support of, of why John is in support of homeschooling. What are some stats that actually could help us understand how it could be a better alternative for some families? Sure. I really enjoyed reading his book. Um, he was a New York State Teacher of the Year in 1991, which is, um, and, and even so, he was this great educator. He you know, had a lot of criticisms about what he called compulsory mass schooling, and compulsory mass schooling became like a law in this country. I don't have the exact date, but it was, it's been about um, a little more than 100 years, I think. And it happened around, more or less, and it happened around the time that child labor laws were put into effect. So these children were being moved from like either like a farm and moving into an industrialized city or they were being moved, or they were like taken out of a labor situation, and like what was going to happen with all these children. So in his book, John Taylor Gatto explores this, and he, you know, says, well, you know, what happened is we, something had to be done with all these children, so they started passing compulsory mass schooling laws. And um, so that so that's how he kind of starts off. And um, before going into, you know, his the seven uh, criticisms he has of compulsory 
government mask schooling. I, I do want to point out that homeschooling is a good solution for families who are concerned about being able to influence the moral values of the children. It's not all about being smart. It's not all about being intelligent. Uh, the purpose of education in the Islamic model is to develop good character. So when we go out and we sharpen our minds, the purpose of sharpening our minds from our, our lifestyle is to have good character. Um, so that being said, um, the seven things that John Taylor Gatto criticized the schools for was, um, number one, confusion. And he said that children are taught seven subjects in a day out of context from the natural world, sequences, and unrelated to each other. They're taught the large of large numbers, dance, drawing, gym, computer languages, social sciences, fire drills, surprise guest speakers, and the orbit of the planet. And what do all these subjects have to do with each other when they're just thrown at you one after the other? And he says that the unrelating of everything leads to infinite fragmentation, which is the opposite of cohesion. So that, that was his first point. And he says that meaning not disconnected facts is what secure and sane humans seek. Mm -hmm. And and in a sense, do you feel, Dr. Zada, that that could also reflect on the notion of tawheed, which is everything is one and interconnected and interdependent, and perhaps the school systems sometimes compartmentalizes and fragments uh, subject matters in such a way that you don't really perhaps grasp that vision of oneness altogether. Is that kind of what he's saying there, perhaps? I definitely agree that this first point speaks to Tawid. And as we're getting more and more specialized in our knowledge, I think that this fragmentation is becoming more intense. So the uh, second uh, point that he makes is that um, is of class position. And he says that, um, I'm going to quote him here, he says that over the years, the variety of ways that children are numbered by schools has increased dramatically until it is hard to see the human being plainly underneath all the numbers they carry. And, you know, he goes on to describe how children develop an artificial sense of belonging with others, and um, they fit into groups of people who share their similar numbers which leads to a caste-like social order. So it's like the people who are good at math hang out with the people who are good at math. Uh, the people who, you know, are good at sports hang out with the people who are good at sports. And, you know, so on and so forth, you know, across, like, the subjects. Yeah, it, this also plays into the disconnection and the confusion that he touched upon in the po first point. So kind of over-identifying with a very small sliver of knowledge or what makes a person so. It leads. It can lead to, in the egos that are out of control. Um, it can lead, to, you know, also to people feeling left out and neglected, um, and just the overall, you know, sense yeah, of loneliness. Yeah, for sure. I've definitely felt that in school. How about you? <laughs> I have. Yeah, it, it's um, also the the competitiveness, you know wanting to get those good uh, numbers, you know, and how be like the behaviors, the competitive behaviors that I had to, you know, do like made me kind of, you know, feel like turned others off socially or something like that. It was hard to get along when with others when I'm trying to take this top spot. Yeah, you're right. And maybe that also can also damage in a indirect way 
the moral, um, virtuous, good character goals that I think most conscious parents want for their kids. Because it's like, well, it, if, if I'm going to be nice or patient or understanding or forgiving, that means I'm going to get thrown under the bus in another way because success and value has been strongly welded to you've got to be popular or you have to wear you know the, the latest Michael Jordan sneakers or whatever it is. And so that kind of takes away from just connecting with the other human beings in your class because you've got all these constructs and categories that you're that are in a sense really artificial um, but that's what's defining your value for a lot of young children and then they come home and their parents are telling them something else right it's like your value is from you know being a good person and having conscientiousness of god and helping your neighbor but it's like if i did all that stuff at school i'd get beaten up and my lunch money would be taken from yeah it's almost like you children are put in a position where in order to uh, do well, they have to kind of have a double standard, you know, so that's scary. That's challenging. Yeah. That's challenging. Let's go through the other points of research that you found. So the third point is indifference. And this was a point where he speaks to how children learn to not really care about anything and how their intrinsic motivation withers. Um, he asserts that the most important thing is what the school authority wants. And, um, you know, he speaks to this example of, um, he always is talking about school bells, like, okay, the class is over now. Now you have to go to your next class and this bell rings. Um, and he kind of like, you know, talks about it like it's a cowbell. And he says that when the bell rings, uh, a child writing a poem must drop what he or she is doing and proceed quickly to the next workstation and maybe start doing some math. So in the lesson of the bells, um, I'm going to quote him here, is that no work is worth finishing, so why care too deeply about it? Wow, that's a good point. Never thought about it like that. Yeah, it's like if you're going to have to stop doing what you're doing, like just, the authority says you have to stop writing this poem that you're passionate about and move on to the next thing they tell you to do, like over time, you might say, like, I'm not going to care so much about expressing what I want to express in the poem um, and just, you know, the person can become indifferent, unfortunately. Right. It's like time for your heart to close up, but you got to go do math now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Subhanallah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a very, that's very profound. So in a homeschooling program, the it doesn't have to be like this sort of a jarring abrupt end to a lesson. Like, you know, if the child wants to finish their poem, they can finish their poem. If the child is like really like enjoying doing their science homework, you know, there, maybe there's an experiment that's going on or they're just out observing in the nature, which is great by the way, because children are moving their bodies, getting natural sunlight, connecting with the earth, um, getting that vitamin B D it's, um, uh, really healthy so that they can continue doing that it doesn't have to you know stop immediately so i think that the homeschool does provide a good antidote to this indifference um the next point he talks about is emotional dependency and um he states that children learn to be dependent upon the stars red checks smiles frowns praises honors favors and disgraces that the authority doles out until they surrender to the chain of command he also says that a child will be allowed to deceive the teacher by asking to go to the bathroom when all he or she wants is some free time in the hall to condition the child to depend on the favors of the teacher. 
How many times I've always I've asked to go to the bathroom a lot of times in school when I didn't really have to go for that same reason. Like yeah. I just need a break from all this, you know. But let me ask you something, Dr. Zadok. Some people might go, okay, so what does that mean? Like, you know, you're not gonna get grades. There's you know, why not have a sense of reward when you do follow a authority or procedure or system? Because some people might go, well, children also have to learn how to respect authority right, and yeah. how are they supposed to know if they're gonna do well or not like in other words this concept of oh everyone's a winner it's like there's we don't keep score when we play a game or take a math test it's like i don't know if like having you know an alligator or a crescent moon on my report card is going to um you know make me feel like my kid is doing well let's say you know because some people just think well if you're not getting grades what are you getting you know just different symbols that represent other things and i mean how does it work i mean is grading in and of itself let's say a bad thing according to this cons this uh, point that you're making or is am i not understanding that fully? i don't think grading is necessarily a bad thing um i think that it's a bad thing when it leads to children. I think it's good for being able to track and make sure the child's like meeting developmental milestones. But I think it's a bad thing when children become aware of what other people's grades are. And then they start to be like, Oh, I'm not doing very well and reading and I have to get pulled out by this like reading specialist and everyone in the class sees me. And then they start to kind of have low self-esteem or maybe act out by like you know, being aggressive, you know, to, because they, they're frustrated. So I would, um, I don't think the grading thing is bad. I just think it's a bad when it leads to comparing kids against each other. Um, and so to some of that, it's, it, it's unavoidable, but there's, there's some we can minimize and I think, uh, and, oh, and you were talking about authority. So I don't think authority is bad either. But we have to ask ourselves, whose authority is it that the children have to learn to be dependent upon? And do we, in our worldview, align with this authority? And where, or maybe like in some ways we do, but in some ways we don't. And, and how are we going to navigate that? Yeah, so maybe, yeah, it is important to recognize, that, uh, let's say there's even a hierarchy of authority in one's life. Right. It's like mom and dad, there's teacher, there's president, there's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there's big brother, big sister. So we do have to kind of navigate um, which one has more weight, let's say. But perhaps the way school set up is for young children, you know, especially developing in their earlier years, um, they may associate that like what happens at school defines me more so than anything else. And that might be the problem here, perhaps. This kind of runs into his fifth point, which is um, intellectual dependency. And um, I'm going to quote him again. And he says, uh, good students wait for the teacher to tell them what to do. And um, he talks about how curiosity has no real place in schools. It's only conformity. And he observes that the school has replaced the Catholic Church in this country. And if evolution is taught as fact rather than theory, it needs to be accepted with the same show of faith. So it's just uh, the education that we have now can become very dogmatic, if you will. And um, deviants who resist will be punished. So, um, you know, if you are going to talk about, um, you know, if you're going to say something against evolution, you know, you have to be willing to, like, maybe get a bad grade in that class. Um, and that's a harsh pill to follow because you 
you want to do well in school as a student. So there's peer pressure from above to adopt some of these ideas um, without questioning. Exactly. And that's that's a challenge because I know that, you know, I mean, turns out that there are holes in evolutionary theory. That's why it's called a theory or it's been a called a theory for a while. But often teachers will deliver this as if like this is hard fact, you know, there's no argument about it. But it's like, I, you know, a lot of kids, even you know, when I was teaching science, uh, you know, and there were Muslim kids in the class, they, they had actually some really good scientific based questions about the theory we were learning in the book. And, you know, it's challenging to be able to hold space for that because according to the curriculum, this is the right answer, at least for now, right? And so I think that that point you're mentioning here is something I've seen firsthand, which is, you know, what if you do have a good scientific question about certain things that we're all assuming has been fully established, like we all evolved from this primordial soup on the planet four point, you know, billions of years ago. Uh, and, you know, a child might say, you know, how is it that some, you know, complex protein formed in this primordial soup and eventually had eyes that could understand, you know, light and it would travel to the surface of the water to be closer to the light and then eventually it gets to, you know, all those stages and becomes a creature on land and doesn't die uh, and has enough time to be on land to now evolve with legs and eventually become reptile mammal and you know and it's like for a kid it's like actually that doesn't always make sense right and it's like well that takes uh, you know how do you fill all those holes so i don't want to get into evolution fully but i think that that point is is interesting because i mean imagine if you had in public schools, a curriculum where let's say you had the evolutionary theory um, as a model, and you also had the model of, um, you know, a, you know, what they call, I guess, intelligent design, which is, you know, a conscious force that does have a cause uh, with all of this. And that doesn't take away from the notion that things do evolve, by the way, but it's, it, I think there is a philosophy to science, and this is true, right? It's like the, the premise you start understanding the nature of the world uh, is going to influence your models of education, and that's what schools produce and engineer our kids with. So I think it is connected. Uh, what are your thoughts? Maybe I was ranting a bit there, but... Uh... Science um, is founded upon philosophy, so I agree with you there. And um, philosophy is coming from ideology so depending on what your ideology and we can even say that re religion is an ideology does, does would you agree with me yeah if, if ideology means a set of ideas that helps you construct the world sure yeah so you I mean looking at it from that way i i see is you know you have the, your ideology and then you have your philosophy and then on top of that you have um science so they're kind of like layers the way i see it and then over um you know science is your education model so the scientific view if you will coming from the philosophy and the ideology of the larger community you're in is going to inform the education model um i remember when i was doing my psych assistantship for workers comp and i was doing a lot of, um, I had to take a life history from people. And I was interviewing a lot of people from China who were in their 60s or so, um, who had lived through the, as children, the Cultural Revolution. 
And what they told me about the Cultural Revolution is that all the schools were shut down so that they could be reorganized to align with communism. I mean, here, like, it's the same thing is happening over here, just that our economic model, our education is serving our economic model. And that's the philosophy or the ideology, if you will. So by 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 having homeschooling situation, you still have to teach the California or Massachusetts, wherever you are, curriculum. Uh, so do you think you would still have some more room to include more of your own philosophy, for instance? Like, does that give you that space? I think it does. What I would recommend doing is presenting. Um, I mean, the children can be educated when they're, you know, mature enough on like what the dominant, uh, you know, position is out there in the world, you know, and, and then they can also be like educated on other ways of looking at things versus just given one way of, you know, like I remember being in school, like I was only taught one version of history, um, you know, and so I think that homeschooling allows more room to teach both, you know, or multiple you know, ways of uh, um, versions of, like, for example, history, um, without leading to a clash of authority in the child's life. Like, well, my teacher says this, mom, you're stupid. Mm -hmm. Or um, I'm not going to listen to my teacher because um, they're dumb. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Subhanallah. The children can learn to respect adults in their life. Um, I think a little bit more when the same person is giving them, you know, different points of view. Right. And there and there isn't um, necessarily a huge risk with that. It's just saying, look, there are different ways to construct the world or the philosophical premises that, you know, ideas launch from. Uh, that's actually part of intellectual cultivation for a child because it helps them understand you can have multiple approaches and ultimately as you seek more knowledge in your life, you will tend to um, live up to the worldview that you feel is more substantiated in your own intellect and your own heart. And so that could actually be useful because if anything, it could strengthen your certainty around what you believe or what you choose is, is more of an accurate description of reality. Thank you for tuning in to the Coffee with Kareem podcast. Please sponsor the show at patreon.com slash coffee with Kareem. We'll be right back after the short break.
moving on to John Taylor Gatto's sixth point in his book is uh, provisional self-esteem. And uh, according to um, John Taylor Gatto, he says that if a child is given the message that they will be loved in spite of anything or, you know, you know, rewarded for good character, this idea will be undermined by the lesson of report cards, grades, percentages, and class rank. And uh, he states children should not be trust, should not trust themselves or their parents for their self-esteem and instead should rely on the evaluation of certified officials. Um, people need to be told what they're worth. There's a, a good German play called Faust where it's about this scholar who wants basically unlimited knowledge and power. So he makes a deal with the devil for unlimited knowledge and power. And um, the, the play just goes on about you know, how he corrupted himself and how, like, his his uh, wife, who's a good woman, starts to go insane because she's so hard for, to live with this man. Anyways, it's, it's by Guther. It's, it's a good, good play. <laughs> but um, Nice. Well, thanks for the reference. So what ends up happening to him? I think his wife kills herself, and that, that was, you know, I th- that wasn't great. Um, he ends up having to give his soul to the devil. Or no, no, I think either he ends up having to give his soul to the devil, it's been a while, or he's able to keep his soul um, because he does one selfless act. Um, I, I forget what, which ending. <laughs> Maybe there's both different versions. Wow. Provisional self-esteem, how people's self-esteem is dependent upon their intellect. Um, where it's kind of socially conditioned to have your self-esteem based on your intellect and the way I see it is intellect is a nafs and it's good to have an intellect to solve a problem to plan to strategize but it's not helpful to just be in your mind all the time um and 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 being unable to drop into a state of being in your heart because you're so identified with your mind, because um, that's how your self-esteem was conditioned. Good point. And perhaps this is a little more potent in Western societies because of the specific historical evolution of thought and religion and what it, you know, what what is true and what is science, right? And the, I, I think we became a very cerebral culture, perhaps. And so even if I'm trying to do something that is about my body dropping into it, right? Whether it's art or dance or movement or, you know, even, you know, constructing, you know, some engineering thing with Legos, right? It's like, if I do get so caught up in my head, I actually could miss out on other ways of developing perhaps. And if that resonates with you, I'd love to hear more about, you know, what would be an example of how, if I'm so stuck in my head, Azada, it could hijack or sabotage or stunt me from other ways of learning because there are multiple intelligences as well right there's also a book i have on my shelf from years ago called multiple intelligences and it talks about this that there are people can be brilliant in many different ways it's not just about you know answering uh, test uh, questions right or uh, being able to regurgitate or memorize somebody else's ideas maybe you can unpack that a bit for us if if that resonates it resonates with me when i makes me think about Al-Ghazali and how Al-Ghazali talks about the two ways of knowing, one through the 
mind and one through the heart and how like the knowing through the heart is a preferred way of knowing um although it's good to have both um and when I think about like multiple intelligences that you're talking about what popped into my mind was someone who's a great musician um and to me like being that great musician does have to do with a lot of heart um it obviously is hard work too but you know there's the heart about being able to like see the beauty and musical patterns and you know see how um you know these are the same patterns that you know might be all over the cosmos and some of them brilliant brilliant and what else does john have to offer as far as you know enlightening us about the benefits of homeschooling homeschooling offers a student-centered learning approach um and the student-centered learning is instead of like the authority like saying okay this is what we're going to study like study when and where a curriculum centered learning and student centered learning allows the child to go um, deeper into a subject that they're very passionate about and um, you know like a child can go three levels deeper if they're very interested in an ecosystem for like frogs for example um, than they could in school and that could really cultivate a sense of passion and curiosity. Um, He also talks about how when um, you have the homeschooling thing, children can utilize a dialectical method of learning more. What does that mean exactly, a dialectical method of learning? Learning through questioning. So like the, the parent or the guardian or the tutor, whoever who's teaching the child, um, you know, will ask questions to the child. And the, the child will also like ask questions to the teacher. And it's sort of like a um, one-on-one or very small group sort of way of learning. And in a public school or even a private school where you have uh, a, the ratio of like a teacher to multiple students, it's hard for the teacher to engage in this sort of like ongoing conversation that involves questioning. Like, so what do you think about this? And why do you think about that? And what are some examples of this? And, you know, we could go on and on on one topic and, you know, ask several questions to a child, you know, in in a way that can stimulate them to learn. And that's not something that a child will get in a private or public school. So it's really about letting the back and forth exist and not rushing it. Like, oh, no, no, we don't have time to keep going with this. We've got, you know, math class now. We have to close the books. We've got to move on. So it's not about dishing down the content uh, to the students. It's about this you know, two-way streak of uh, stimulating one another's minds and trying to find perhaps a new synthesis of ideas. Yeah, another point he makes is about um, in a homeschooling model, the child can start doing things and identifying with what they're doing right away. For example, um, children a lot of times are like, when I grow up, I want to be this. So with homeschooled children, it's like, well, you know, I'm this, you know, this is what I do. Like, I like am a baker, you know, because I bake, you know, it's not like when or I I make this or like I make robotics or something. Like, let's say, you know, part of the homeschooling curriculum is like, once a month, or, you know, maybe just a couple times a year, they go to this local farm, you know, that does like beekeeping. 
and, you know, the children get to go um, and, and they start to create an identity around like, you know, I'm someone, I'm a, a, a shepherd of the earth. It's not like everything's on hold, like I can't be anything and my identity, you know, of service in the world doesn't start until I get out of school. Right. Or perhaps like if a parent tells their kid, you know, from age five on, like you're going to be a doctor. And so the kid almost gets limited to exploring other ideas or subjects, especially ones that might pull them because the parent now gets worried or anxious like, oh, I don't like I don't want you to like art or writing too much because you're going to become a doctor. You're a doctor. So sometimes parents, Azada, could also label the kids and almost force feed this identity as well. Does Do you think that's a possibility? And if so, how is that detrimental, perhaps? Hmm. Yeah, I know. I am aware that that happens. And I don't think that it's great for parents to say, like, this is what, you know, you're going to be and pressure the kids towards that. Because it sets up a situation where, just from my observations, um, either the child does become that and they become successful and they may or may not be happy, you know, maybe they will, maybe they won't. Um, or, you know, they'll kind of go on the rebelling path because they start to think in terms of like doctor, engineer, or lawyer, or nothing. (laughs) (laughs) So I I don't agree with either (laughs) of these things. So I'm going to be nothing. This is your destiny. Um, and, And they don't get the opportunity to develop their own passions and entrance. They're kind of eclipsed and dominated out by their parents um and i and i know a lot of times the parents are coming from a good coming from good intentions they want the best for their child just might be you know some fear of like i need my child to do have a good life by doing something practical that just becomes an overgrowth um of like the right dose of like you know structure for the kid Right. Sometimes also parents want their kids to be what they wish they could be, but never got to it, for instance. Right. Who knows? Right. Like I always wanted to be a doctor, but then I had you. So I can't I couldn't. So now you're going to be a doctor. (laughs) And sometimes parents will also see their kids almost as a retirement plan. It's like, well, you got to be, you know, you you have to do a job that pays really well because you got to take care of us. Right. So there is, of course, there th- so these things have to be considered. But, you know, you mentioned Abu Hamad al-Ghazali earlier. He was considered one of uh, Islam's, you know, most popular scholars in the past and, and wrote, for example, Ihya Ulum al-Din, which is the revival of religious sciences. And he made an interesting comment from what I recall. Is that he said that children, you know, all Allah created everybody with certain gifts uh, which means that they're going to be there. Every person actually has a capacity to do really well at certain things um, compared to, let's say, others or the standard population. And he said that when you're a child with your children, you should actually let them dabble and explore and be exposed to the multiple subjects and, uh, you know, topics that exist in the world because the stuff that they're going to be very inclined towards, almost like the stuff you can't yank them away from, right? And video games doesn't count, guys, <laughs> okay? We're talking about like, you know, the kid just wants to do Legos all day or, you know, puzzles or or draw or, or write or paint or... Um, you know, try to figure out arithmetic um, problem solving and so forth. Abu Hamad said that what the child is more inclined to and, you know, he's really or she's passionate about, that's the thing that perhaps you have to nourish because if they are, 
gifted in such a way, they're going to surpass all their peers in that subject, right? So, you know, it's like thinking to yourself, all right, do I want do I want my kid to be a um, world-renowned violin player that tours with famous orchestras because they were very musical since they were young? Or do I stunt that because it, they're not being a doctor or an engineer? Or they want to, you know, they're more inclined to engineering, but I still make them, you know, be a doctor. And it's like, well, they could have been, you know, starting the next Tesla for all you know. But you didn't let that really happen because it didn't fit into your view or agenda or what you thought was best, right? And of course, parents do have sometimes really good intentions, but sometimes there's conflation with their own, uh, let's say, desires versus uh, allowance of recognizing the child is not technically owned by the parent. It's owned by Allah. And Allah gave it a capacity. And our job is to help nourish that capacity and recognize it may not be you know, what we hoped it would be necessarily. But that doesn't mean it's going to be unsuccessful or unvaluable or not beautiful, let's say. What are your thoughts? My recommendation for parents is to focus on character development versus being a professional uh, a professional role. And the reason why um, you can focus on, like, character development is, let's say you focus on, like, you know, teaching the child how the values of supporting themselves um, – being, um, you know, self-sufficient and individual, like I can pick up, you know, my dishes and put them, you know, in the sink or the dishwasher, um, or like, you know, providing them the values of like how to provide value to their family um, when they get older and like how to pr maybe provide for their families, just teaching them like these sort of values versus like telling them how they should do it. Like, and then, so that would give room for the child, like, if they want to, you know, enact these values through art, or if they want to enact it through medicine, if they want to enact it through, um, you know, the service industry, or however they're capable, wherever their, their gift is, wherever they feel that they have something to offer the world, and everyone does have something to offer the world, Um some people, you know, just uh, just a matter of like self-discovery. Some people it's easier for than others, but everyone does, I believe, have a special gift. You know, just uh, instead of focusing on on the profession, just focus on the values. That would be my recommendation. Um, I know that sometimes homeschooling, you know, can go go wrong um, if the parents are, you know, maybe controlling. Like I would see it as like. Some parents maybe want their child to be a doctor because it's a narcissistic extension. They see their child as a narcissistic extension of themselves. Everyone doing their own self-discovery and self-growth. And, um, you know, parents are developing as children are developing, too. Right. And point seven, one can't hide. Uh, what was this one all about, from according to John Taylor's book? Um, so he describes in his last and seventh point of the book is that children are, um, they have no private spaces and no pr private time and surveillance is constant. Even after the children go home, they're given homework to do as they get older. And this means that their time with their family is limited, um, where they might be learning values from their family or community members. Um, now they're like doing, you know, this, uh, government mass schooling, like homework stuff. 
So after I, I consulted on homeschooling with Elizabeth Hansen from the Smart Homeschooler, and she was telling me that average homeschool um, program is about three to four hours per day. Um, she told me instead of versus like a child, you know, maybe their school day plus commuting to school is like maybe, let's say, eight hours. So over the course of kindergarten through 12th grade, you know, having 50% less schooling in a homeschooling program actually amounts to 8,000, uh, let's say, 640 hours, which is basically two years of a child's life by the time they're 18. So so that's like two years of um, maybe he's speaking to that point of surveillance. Um, homeschooling isn't for everyone. I'm not going to knock uh, private or public schools. Like some families are in situations where they don't really have a choice or maybe a child has special needs and he needs like the resources of certain aids in the school or, you know, um, one thing or the other. But so it's not for everyone. Um, I actually like my political stance is I actually like um, Milton Friedman's uh, position. He's an American economist in 1976. He won the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Studies. Um, he talks about a lot about school vouchers, and that means giving um, the, the parent a choice of how they want the money that's spent on their child per year in public school to go. So like eleven to $15,000 per year is what it costs to put a child, a child in public school. So he says that if this voucher could go, it could go to public school, it could go to homeschooling, or you go to private schooling, and he was saying that this would create a competition where the public schools have to work harder to get the students, and it would improve them. So it's not like taking away from the public school system. It just, um, you know, in some ways, it's making them be more competitive and maybe more responsive to different communities and what they expect out of an education. Yeah, no, that's a great point because it's, I mean, again, you and I are having this discussion today because it's something we're both interested in and, and can see it as a valid alternative, right? And, and I think that's all we're trying to do here is there's homeschooling, there's private schools, there's public schools, there's charter schools, which is kind of in between a private and a public school. And everyone has to evaluate their circumstances and what they're willing to risk for the gain, right? Uh, so that's that's something we all have to sit with. But, you know, one other thing I wanted to ask you, Dr. Zada, before uh, we end our conversation today is, well, some sometimes people will go, well, how, do, how is that going to affect them getting into college um, and overall performance of academics? Uh, do we have any stats on that, which actually demonstrate that you don't necessarily um, hinder education and placing in these national or state standardized testing. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. I did some research on what the literature, academic literature says on academic achievement, uh, social, emotional development, and um, college education and beyond for the homeschooling population. And it was mostly positive. Um, there's some uh, negative and mixed findings, but overall, the research showed that homeschooling do have an advantage. Um, so one study um, that I found, it was um, by Rudner 1999. He looked 
Redner in 1999, he looked at 20,760 K-12 students, and he found that the median test scores for these homeschool students fell between 70 and 80th percentile of students nationwide, and 60 to 70th percentile of the Catholic private school students. So basically what this saying is that the homeschool students are above the 50% median mark for the entire national population. And that's really heartwarming because, you know, a research study that I came across was by Kogan in 2010, who found that there was no difference between homeschool and traditionally schooled children's four-year college graduation rates. Um, he did find that homeschool students scored higher than traditionally school students in their first and fourth year GPAs. There doesn't seem to be a difference um, or a negative impact on homeschooling when it comes to college admission and beyond, and um, no difference in college retention rates um, as well. So, so those are some of the stats I have when it comes to the academics. Dr. Zada, I really appreciate the conversation we had today. I certainly learned a lot more about what homeschooling is all about, what it entails, what are some of the benefits. And the last question I wanted to ask you, based on also your knowledge in psychology, what would be the recommendation for the best time to try it? Is it when the kids are younger, let's say their early years of development, you know, where we want to make sure a lot of foundation in their character and worldview is established? Or let's say some people go, well, no, I'd maybe try do it when you're in middle and high school because that's sometimes where a lot of the social or environmental uh, problems could begin, right? Like getting, uh, learning about porn and, and drugs and, and things like this. Uh, so is do you think there is a, in the end of the day, it just comes down to the family and the circumstance and the area that they live in, for instance? Or as a, you know, someone with a psychology background, do you have a recommendation around that or, or some advice? I would advise doing it, let's say, until the child is um, the most critical period for homeschooling, I think, is until the child is till seven or eight years old. And uh, the reason why I say that is because it, the child staying at home is allowing them to deepen their attachment bond to their primary caregiver, which will help them feel more secure um, later on in life and may even be mitigating against some of the problems like porn um, that would come up later in teenage years. Um, I also think that it's um, a, a critical period to help instill values them, that the child can like reflect back on, um, and will have a memory of. So I think that the younger, and, and my last point on why I think that this, um, the younger is good is because a lot of the times when children are younger, they're learning at different rates. And um, someone who's slow in reading might be an excellent reader by the time they're nine, 10 years old. But because they happen to be slow in first grade, um, they, um, I used to be a counselor in different public schools in the San Francisco Bay Area. So let's say the kid is like slow and they might have to come and see um, a counselor and the reading specialist and stuff like that. And this starts to shape them. They start to internalize it and think, I'm not smart. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not good. Um, I also think that a lot of times what happens with boys in particular is that boys need a little, have a harder time when they're 
you know, five, six years old sitting in a desk uh, for long periods of time. And, you know, they, they might want to be running around a little bit more so they get pegged as having behavioral problems. Um, and that would be another reason why I would see, like, uh, you know, someone maybe in, uh, that would get referred to me in counseling when I was a counselor at the schools. Having the child do homeschooling early on will, like, prevent that child from being misdiagnosed as having ADD or ADHD. And, like, a lot of times for boys, they can sit down and focus at a desk, you know, when they're older after they've been running around and, you know, running around and like doing different physical activities has allowed the proprioceptive and the vestibular system in their brain to develop, which are the systems responsible for balance and equilibrium. And until these systems are developed and they develop through physical activity, it's really hard for um, children, particularly boys, to sit and focus for prolonged periods of time. For these reasons, I think that the younger age is the best age to homeschool. I think that it's, you know, realistic to say, you know, hey, I'm going to try out homeschooling for one to two years when the child is young. And then instead of saying, hey, I'm going to commit to uh, 12th K through 12th, I think it's something that needs, you know, parents can and families can take step by step. They can, you know, maybe give it a try and then they can reevaluate and see if it's a good fit for their families. I've Definitely talked with some people who just decided to homeschool their child for like one to two years until, um, you know, they met some milestone that the parent was valuing. Thank you so much, Azada. And uh, I hope you and your family stay healthy and safe and well during this time. And um, may uh, you and your family stay safe and healthy, too. I mean, I mean, thank you so much, sister. Salam alaikum. Well, thank you.